Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Hi! That's Michael over there. That's me. He's gaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's got, got that big VR headset on, circa 1992. He's mm-hmm. flying through cyberspace. Mm-hmm. Doing, like, the cyberluge. Mm-hmm. He's talking to his uh, like eleven year old next door neighbor. Uh-huh. <laughs> Get, they're getting mad at each other, developing long, lifelong uh, anger, uh, deep seated gamer anger. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's learning too much. <laughs> getting to be a problem using TK on yeah. everybody. I'm taking all the Encarta CDs and just mm-hmm. <laughs> soaking up all the information from them. It's true, because uh, that's what we all did in the 90s, of course, and uh, we're not talking about the 90s. Well, no, we are talking about the 90s a little bit today, A little we? bit. I was going to say that we're not, but we are. We're gonna, I, we learned some fascinating things about the 90s I didn't know anything about, but, uh, you know, this, this show, this is Game Study Study Buddies. Uh, if this is your first episode, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, basically, the show here is that we read academic books, game studies, and we talk about them and hopefully make them uh, useful or accessible or give you some, um, you know, handholds if you're not familiar with any of this work so you can approach it, start engaging with it. Um, so this is a show that's for everybody, from people who are game studies academics to people who are designers to people who are just interested. Uh, and uh, hopefully you find something interesting here. Uh, to engage with and we've got like a million back <laughs> episodes for you to also check out if you want to <laughs> learn more about all kinds of other stuff as well but this month we're talking about uh the player's power to change the game ludic mutation uh by Anne marie schleiner uh this book came out uh what michael 2017 yes from amsterdam university press um and and pretty pretty slim volume i would say mm-hmm. um you know 150 pages uh i say that and i'm doing page proofs for my own book and it's like right at 200 <laughs> <laughs> and i'm thinking oh we could i could have had some more stuff to put in this book but uh it's uh i wanted to read this give a little background on it uh i wanted to read this because i think these things are interesting you know i i think that books? If there is a uh, I think books are interesting. I think the printed word is a fascinating thing. I still don't really know how it works, just to be honest. <laughs> so you look at signs and symbols, and it creates ideas in your brain? Hmm. And you put that between two covers? <laughs> Who would have thought? Some sort of glyph magic. Uh, it's. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes there's superheroes in there, and, <laughs> and we start imagining the monomyth. It's wild. You know, I, I don't know what to do. If you, put a, if you put a picture in there, the whole thing gets bizarre you start having to develop canonicity uh <laughs> and everything is true all at once um it's it's uh mystical in some ways <laughs> but uh no uh, no the the idea that uh the way that a person interacts with a uh video game is weird to me mm-hmm. in a general sense i find that interesting and fascinating and you know i'm not a media effects person media effects being the field that generally talks about this and what I would call like a social science way for the most part. Um, I'm not a media effects person, meaning that uh, I'm, I'm inherently distrustful <laughs> of numbers. <laughs> they're, they're not little, they're glyphs that count things. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I like glyphs that summon up dragons and fairies. Right. You can't do that with a number. It's impossible. <laughs> number four has never summoned a demon or a devil. Uh, but uh, it's only the, the number six that does that, of course. <laughs> 
and uh, so anyway, I'm interested in that. Uh, you know, there's a big chunk of my own um, forthcoming book that is dedicated to thinking through these things. Uh, and I've been reading a lot about it for like the last two years while working on my book. Uh, and Schleiner deals with a lot of that stuff. So unfortunately, I was finishing my book, you know, kind of setting everything um, in stone to the point where you can't like start adding big paragraphs and things like that. And it was only at that point that I like discovered this book. And so then I said, oh, hey, Michael, maybe we should read it for the show uh, so so we could check it out. Um, I don't know. Have, did you know about I don't think you knew about this book beforehand, but are, are you familiar with Schleiner's work or anything like that? Uh, not at all. Uh, you, you brought this up and I was just I'm glad that you're covering this now because I was going to ask how you found out about this book specifically. Uh, you just happened to mention it when we were tossing around ideas for the next book. And I was interested in I mean, the the, the implications of the title were interesting to me for fairly similar reasons as to what you just outlined. Uh, you know, the, the player's power to change the game ludic mutation uh, as someone who also thinks that the ways that people interact with games uh, is very strange and interesting uh, that there there could have been something there. Right. Really interesting mm -hmm. in the idea of ludic mutation. So I was like, yeah, sure. Let's go with it. Yeah, it seems uh, it it seemed interesting, and I I will be totally honest. I have no idea how I <laughs> found this book. Um, you know, something that I've really noticed, not to get too deep on it, but something I've really noticed, uh, you know, while doing kind of intensive research for the book of you know trying to make sure that I'm in conversation with with uh, you know the other people who have written about this, not just like the top five names in the thing, but like you know just other academics in a broad sense, is that research is still harder than it seems <laughs> mm -hmm. like like you know we have this fantasy of uh once everything is uh in a digital system and databases and you can search it uh that that we might more easily find uh kind of undercover books or or books that are uh, around the topic you're writing on but not quite in the same spot you know this kind of isomorphic you know uh approaches mm -hmm. um and I think I think I ended up finding this book in like the bibliography of an article. Mm. Uh, you know, it was like that level of of thing. Nowhere in my you know uh, Google Scholar searches or my like, library database searches of like procedural rhetoric, which shows up here, or of uh, you know just like subjectivation in games, which is I have a whole chapter of that uh, in my book. I'm not trying to mention my book constantly here. I'm just in the middle of page proofs for it, and <laughs> it's like right on the top of my dome. But that's just to say, it, it is it, it, this book really brings up to me, or, or makes really apparent to me that uh, without networks of like people talking about and promoting a book, like the algorithm and even the database are just not going to do enough work to surface some stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in a way that I think we have the fantasy that that it does more than, you know, in the 1980s when you had to, like, go, go through a card catalog or, like, hope that someone told you about the book. So uh, I think we're still, like, in a world of uh, maybe the best way to learn about a, an interesting book of game studies that's slightly off topic from yours is to hope someone tells you about it. Um, you know, I'm sure you love that. I'm sure you love the idea that there's this like, uh, <laughs> pre, you know, pre oral tradition system that still is dominant, even though we have the fantasy that it isn't. It's a very Michael Lutz, uh, love. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, that's all to say, not to, not to get too far away. I ran into this and, uh, yeah, it was one of three or four books I was really interested in reading that were like kind of on my desk and ready to go. 
And uh, that's why I wanted to do it. Did, did you do any research on who Anne-Marie Schleiner is? Because people might know who she is, but maybe not the name. Uh, I didn't know who she was before this. Uh, and I did in, end up looking her up and found out that uh, she's got kind of a, a long and storied history as kind of a digital artist, uh, net artist from kind of the 90s onward. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um she yeah we we did a little bit of research before the, you know right before the episode started here too and so on the back of the book that we got with, this is 2017 it says Amory Schleiner is an artist designer and assistant professor of communications and new media at the National University of Singapore but then we looked at her most recent book from 2020 and that book says that she was a lecturer I think at UC Davis and so it kind of seems like many artists right many artist mm-hmm. practitioners she kind of bounces around a bit um and you know goes from institution to institution um uh, in a way that that you know, if you're familiar with how the arts and the university and, and university structures interface with one another, that's not going to be surprising. So, but we couldn't. We were looking at her website and couldn't really figure out where she is right now. Um, but you know, long storied academic who has produced two books. The other book that is from 2020 is called, I think, Transnational Play, mm-hmm. uh, and it looked quite interesting as well. But yeah, uh, people might be familiar uh, uh, with uh, Schleiner from the late 90s in particular. She wrote a book, or not a book, but she wrote an essay that I've seen collected in a few places and I've seen cited quite a bit called, uh, Does Lara Croft Wear Fake Polygons? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of, you know, an analysis in in the way that a lot of um, kind of representational analysis in the late 90s in video games was, you know, it's kind of about uh, representations of women uh, and uh, uh, like how those are, how that embodiment works and then how it plays within the kind of digital space, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, kind of a famous piece there. And as you were saying too, also curator artist, uh, and we'll talk about that as we get into chapter one here. Uh, Is there any other preferatory stuff you wanted to talk about here, Michael? Uh, Not particularly. Uh, One other thing to flag, I guess, is that I'm pretty sure this book was her dissertation uh, in 2012 or yeah, 2012. And then, uh, it becomes this, which is the published book later on. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just, and if we want to get into it, there's also an introduction before that first chapter, but I don't know if you actually think there's much to cover in the introduction because it is rather just a summary of what's going to happen. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the introduction. Um, yeah. The other thing I was going to say is that, uh, yeah, got got a PhD from I think what the University of the Netherlands. Yes, Is I believe so. Okay, and uh, it, it it's a uh, the book feels like a dissertation. Yes, right. If it feels like a converted dissertation, I, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I've read enough of these now. <laughs> I've read forty five books <laughs> just for this show, and I feel like I have a very good sense of like what a converted dissertation looks and feels like and what kind of a bespoke book uh, for a topic that's after the dissertation or beside the dissertation, what that looks and feels like too. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a big centralizing concept. And then, you know, it's kind of like a wheel and spoke method, right? There's like the axle and that's the big unifying concept. That's ludic mutation. Mm-hmm. And then each chapter is kind of a proof of how it shows up in different ways. Um, and that's definitely how I was taught to write my dissertation, and it's kind of how I wrote my first book too. And I'm really trying to like break away from that. I don't, I don't know if that's the, the best way for me, um, both as a reader and a writer, to engage with stuff. But really common method. Uh, but it also means that you can kind of read every chapter by itself mm-hmm. if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so if any of these sound interesting to you, 
you could, you know, ILL request or, you know, get someone to scan it for you or whatever. And uh, you, you wouldn't be missing too much by reading the singular chapter here. Introduction. Yeah, the introduction uh, kind of lays out a little bit of theoretical grounding. The, the book actually gets the most theoretical at the very beginning and at the very end, but in kind mm -hmm. of different ways. Uh, but the beginning uh, sort of just lays out uh, that, like a, a sort of, I guess, grounding way of looking at the world um, that is going to be evidenced through all of the readings in the subsequent chapters, uh, which is sort of the synthesis of uh, work and kind of Huizinga, uh, namely uh, taking this idea from work from uh, uh, the idea of game space, which we talked about in the, the Gamer Theory book. And go back and listen to the episode on that. Uh, but game space, this idea from work that uh, the the sort of like ideological construction of our everyday life is becoming more and more game like um, that like we are being encouraged to think of things as games or as gamified and to live our lives as if we are uh, playing. Right. Um, so she takes that Schleiner does uh, and then sort of presents it as a kind of troubling uh, development um, of Huizinga's theorization of the magic circle, this idea that uh, if play was a thing that could be contained, we have obviously hit a point in history where it is no longer being contained and it is sort of like seeping out into the world in other various ways. Uh, and so therefore it behooves us as uh, scholars and thinkers and, and sort of politically minded people, um, because Schleiner is also uh, an, an activist, right? Uh, a lot of her mm -hmm. art uh, sort of uh, orbits around like interventions, uh, sort of like socio political interventions in like games culture or like bringing kind of like uh, social issues to the surface in games uh, in ways that they tend to be submerged. Mm -hmm. Um so it behooves us then to look at uh, how games subjectify people. That's the term that she uses, right? How do games produce people as subjects? Uh, but then uh, the, the sort of like follow on to that is her idea of ludic mutation, uh, which is, and I'm just going to quote here from uh, page 11. Um, it's the process of, quote, a player driven transformation of an existing game into another uh, and that has a lot of broad applicability and uh, we're going to get like sort of different versions of that throughout each of the each of the chapters. Um, but this is also like the way that we get folded into kind of like a hacker ethos, right? Like people who who uh, this is actually also something that uh, work talks about a little bit in, in gamer theory, right? The idea of being um, uh, uh, lu uh, lucid, not ludic or something. I might have transposed those, but there's a very mm -hmm. similar kind of turn uh for work of being able to like find as Zizek puts it right, find the, the uh, uh, reality within the illusion or the illusion within the reality or whatever uh, as, as sort of like the, the weird airy ideological uh, world around you starts getting uh, transformed. How do you take kind of like that transformative property and like use it to your own benefit or like use it as a mode of resistance? And uh, later on, Schleiner is going to get really into the situationists and so on, which is another big work influence. So you can really see a lot of overlap between uh, these two thinkers here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really I mean, obviously works being cited. Yeah. You know, so so it, but but I, I agree. I think there's like even a level deeper that there's a um, uh, I don't know. A, uh, I, I, I guess I wish there was a deeper engagement with work. Yeah. Here. 
um, because I think that it would pr- it would be really interesting to see like what are the because because there's not a deep engagement. I get, I'm trying to figure out a way to say it because there's not a super deep engagement with work here. You don't get a good sense of where Schleiner agrees and disagrees. Mm-hmm. Um, you really kind of get this like you know uh, two ships sailing by each other in the night deal of like work talks about the situation as. <laughs> Schleiner talks about the situationists. Maybe they talk about them in the same way. Maybe they don't. You know, Schleiner doesn't really do that work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I would, you know, it would be interesting to hear someone, and I, neither of us are prepared to do this, but like academically working through what are the ways that the, these two people engage with um, the, you know, the situationists and use them to enliven these like theoretical models. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, you know, something I'll say here at the top two that, that I found really interesting. I think that this is a great uh, book for like key terms. In, in what sense? Uh, in the sense of like, there's some cool, like ludic mutation. Oh, yes. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, play material, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what we're about to get unfolding game. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think there's some really cool, like, uh, I don't know, genre terms or uh uh, names to modes of engagement you know i don't know quite what the what the right word here would be and and you know i i have some qualms with some of those you know i don't know if they i i would use them as wholeheartedly maybe as schleiner does but i do think they're really interesting and Mm -hmm. really uh cool provocations for thinking about uh the ways that big systems kind of run into players Mm -hmm. yeah well i mean if we want to get some specifics on the table then we can start with the first chapter uh, let me say one quote. So this is on page 11 from the introduction. I thought this was really like a, a big deal for thinking about what the project of the book is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is on page 11. This is a quotation. Um, players design and play their own games, thereby seizing back some of that which was lost to the game. My underlying, uh, I wrote docs, but that can't be true. Uh, it focus. Uh, my... <laughs> Yeah, it must be focused. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> My underlying focus over the course of this book concerns this power grab from the game. I understand these acts as player-driven transformations of an existing game into another as a transformative process I refer to as ludic mutation. Right? So so inherently in this game or in this not in this game, in this book, the you know, the the struggle of the book is that games try to do things to players. Mm-hmm. And then players have all this kind of toolbox of ways that they uh, don't quite do what the game wants them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what each of these chapters is, is uh, each one's like a different name for a way that players mutate or resist or move against it. And I think I have some varying levels of uh, acceptance of these like forms of mutation. Um, but I do think they're all at least really interesting uh, and worth, worth thinking about for sure. But w- with that kind of big stakes, uh, you know, argument in mind, yeah, let's, let's go on to chapter one. Yeah. Uh, so the, the first chapter is just called uh, uh, The light, uh, Lightness of Digital Doll Play. Uh, there's no subtitle or anything. Uh, and this introduces one of those key terms that you just mentioned, uh, the unfolding game. And this is from page 19. Uh, this is Schleiner's term for, uh, quote, open-ended generative iterative games. Uh, and sort of the the case study here is a, a game from like the mid-90s. I, I can't quite uh, pin down where it would have come from. But um, one of the other things to flag about this book actually is that in terms of like time period or like distinct sort of segments of like gaming history um, that it's like interfacing with, uh, there's actually kind of a, a pretty broad uh, a net cast because this is like this is like some 90s net art stuff, right? It's a game called uh, yeah. and it's I, I think 
uh, uh, Japanese, so forgive me if I'm not pronouncing mm-hmm. this correctly, but it's called a uh, uh, Kisego Ninge, uh, or just Kiss. Um, and it's like, I mean, it's almost certainly something you've seen. Uh, it is a uh, game where you have like a, a doll, like a little virtual doll, and you can like customize the body and you can make like your own uh, clothing articles for it. And uh, Schleiner ends up looking at how this thing uh, gets taken up by kind of uh, like queer, uh, uh, like gender non-conforming uh, communities in uh, like the the internet art space in the 90s. Um, like that's where, where everything is going, but this is also kind of like the, the scaffolding that gets us there is like looking at the history of a doll as a toy, as a play object, and sort of uh, the importance attached to these things with uh, uh, like the, the idea uh, that we saw way back in Calois, for instance, that like little girls play with dolls because it's preparative play, right? It, it trains them for being like it, it trains little girls for being women, for caring for smaller things, for dressing uh, and, and so on and so forth. Right. So uh, the traditional idea of the of the doll toy object as preparative play and as a, a fairly teleological uh, kind of play, uh, 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 sort of gender conforming, like reinforcing uh, normative play, as opposed to what ends up happening uh, with these uh, kiss dolls. Yeah. So, so kiss itself, I, I while you were talking there, I, I gave it a little bit of a look up here. So uh, kiss, which is like the system itself, which is the Kisakai set system. Mm-hmm. Right? So like that's the acronym. Uh, uh, is released in Japan in 1991 and then is like ported over or whatever uh, into the Anglophone world somewhere after that. So yeah, I guess mid-90s. Um, and yeah, it's like hosted on uh, like otaku world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, you know, very much like the, the um, you know, fan communities almost mm-hmm. of, of, of the mid-90s. And, uh, but yeah, exactly as you're saying, right? The... Uh, in in a world in which doll play is regularly understood to be preparatory play, you know that that sets particularly um, girls into being women, right? And and woman being a historically con- contingent category here of a certain set of behaviors and affectations and cultural positions and all these different things. Um, uh, Schleiner then just like close reads. Well, actually, when you give people on the internet a bunch of dolls, what do they do with them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they don't. They don't do that. No. <laughs> wait. Wait. What? What? Uh, they don't. They don't uh, enact some sort of like you know universalized uh, you know Euro modern femininity, mm-hmm. right? Of of prep of preparing you to be like a good mother. They or become furries. <laughs> they become furries. Right? Yeah, There's like that's... fox ladies in here, right? Yeah. Does she use the word furry? I don't think she does actually. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think so either. Or she did maybe in quotation marks. Uh, you know, like, it's very brief because but we do get uh we do get a picture of like uh someone's like furry version, right? Anthropo it's like an anthropomorphic fox, I think, specifically. Yep. Yes. Wearing like uh I'm I'm wearing like thigh highs. Yes. Or like cat like a schoolgirl uniform. <laughs> It's like it's a very '90s image, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Uh, and uh, but yeah, so like people start doing all kinds of stuff, and and she, you know, close reads some. I, I guess she has these images saved or they're archived, and you can like go back and look at them. But she talks about you know some of them uh, because the the you you might not have a good idea uh, based on what we said so far of like what the kiss system looks like, but it's actually really interesting because it is not an animation. Uh, and it's not one single image. 
it's like a file of 10 images. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of use each image to do something else with. So you can like tell a story across 10 images. And the idea, for what I, from what I understand, is like you download it, you use the software to edit them, and then you re-upload them, and then people can download them and look at them and, and play with them themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get 10 images. And so some people use them as like a way to tell a narrative. And so she tells one story about a user who kind of uh, tells an explicitly trans story, mm-hmm. right? So it uh, starts out with a character, uh, you know, who has breasts. And then like the in image two, breasts go away. In image three, they get like uh, like some sort of phallic object, mm-hmm. right? Because, they, they're you know, it's not just like doll stuff here, right? Like people are including all kinds of like adult content quote yeah. unquote yeah you know as a part of there's also like right. sounds and things like you like there's she mentions like uh if you click on certain dolls in certain places like they moan or like gasp yeah and so the so anyway so people are using them to like tell stories mm-hmm. you know from like in sequential images and some people using are using them as collaborative art practice so like she, she tells uh you know one anecdote about uh using this platform and giving uh each doll to a different artist and then just seeing what they produce with it, you know, in this kind of like shared space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's really non-determinative what you do with these and people are using them in pretty radical ways. Yeah. And it's uh, explicitly connected to the, the, the game of exquisite corpse uh, mm-hmm. by Schleiner. So just to call back to our episode, uh, surrealism at play with Laxton, uh, seeing a similar kind of non-determinative collaborative possibility here in in uh, the creation of these dolls. And this is explicitly contrasted for Schleiner with something like um, World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft yes. shows up a couple times in this book as like um, uh, it, it not not like. Uh, dragging World of Warcraft, but uh, th- the way that WoW shows up here, like it's all, it's very clearly like Schleiner pointing at uh, something that is happening and being like, here's what I would like for no- games not to do or not happen, right? Like, uh, like WoW is the thing that happens and you wish games were doing something otherwise uh, because uh, she talks about how, you know, you can customize your, your little, your little uh, tune or whatever in WoW uh, but your options are extremely limited, right? Uh, to things that have been pre-programmed into the game. Um, everything has kind of this unified aesthetic. Uh, and in general, WoW is given over to uh, what uh, what Schleiner calls kind of the replication of certain types of hierarchies. So like the simulation of economies or like, uh, you know, uh, combat and things like that. Uh, it's about like the simulation of a world um, which already, like, I guess uh, uh, Schneider doesn't put it this way, but to articulate kind of what the, the gripe there is, um, is that by simulating a world according to, like, these certain, like, extra ludic uh, logics, like economics and so on, um, you have... Like, the guild, She's really, uh, for this point, she really hammers on, like, the guild structure. Yes. And the hierarchy of, like the raiding guild mm-hmm. and the fact that you can be kicked out of a guild mm-hmm. like what is up with that right you can be fired from a guild is what she says but 
Yeah. Right, right, right. So it like the game gives you all these tools for like reproducing uh like social hierarchies, right? And and like modes of exclusion and so on. Um and that's really contrastive for her with something like these kiss dolls where you just make the thing and upload it and then other people download it and they make their edits and they re-upload it or like you download someone else's and uh that's what's open-ended, right? This is what it makes it an unfolding game is that uh it it can kind of uh, the, the the steps to the kiss game uh, are such that it can just be reiterated over and over again, but with the potential for kind of a different outcome. Uh, but like WoW's core loops are always going to bring you back to like the maintenance of uh, the guild structure or the economic structure or like, you know, the 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 ongoing like subscription subscription based project of WoW itself or something like that. Yeah, it's it is fundamentally an arresting apparatus. Yes. That you know, that makes you do certain things and ultimately just like re-delivers you to the world you thought you were escaping. And and she basically says all MMORPGs do this, mm-hmm. you know, as, as part of their design. You know, if I if I have one kind of big major critique here, and I totally get why this happens, like I'm not like, you know, confused about this, but it's that basically all of these chapters have like they're very Manichaean, right? Like uh, uh yes. the the ludic practice is good and the resistant practice is good and the dominant social form is bad and uh you know what like i'm a i'm a naive determinist you know i, I think i say that enough that that, that uh, it should be taken seriously i think there are things that do bad stuff to us right mm-hmm. like uh listen to addiction by design i think there are uh machine apparatuses that were in which they're Whatever our imagination of escape or um, maneuvering might be, we're clearly wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like the machine just does stuff to you, and you can't really do much about it. And I think that games are are operative within that in certain ways, for sure. Like I'm on board with sometimes things are just bad and do bad stuff. Uh, not that they're like irredeemable or that we have to reject them out of hand or whatever, but I do think we have to go into discussions about them with eyes open. Um, you know, I don't think there's a liberatory gambling machine practice on the planet. Um, and so, so I totally get why, um, Schleiner would have this kind of very much like, well, here's one practice that's good. Here's one practice that's bad, but also we know the like billions of interesting liberatory things that have happened through MMORPG structures, right? Through role-playing or through the performance of whatever gender construct that you are, uh, born into, you know, and socialized into not being the one you want to have. And so using MMORPGs as a way to experiment with that and ultimately kind of, um, uh, uh, enable you to to change your life circumstances. We know plenty of people mm-hmm. uh, who have done that kind of thing, and there's a lot of writing on it. And you know the so like in my mind, the WoW RP server right works just as strangely and oddly and against the the system, quote unquote, right, mm-hmm. as something like Kiss does. But that's not talked about here. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not um, that has to be kind of artificially separated in order to happen here. But I do kind of buy the argument, and I think it's really interesting that that because it's open-ended, right, it's unfolding, there's no raid boss at the end of the, yeah. the paper doll, <laughs> you know, for you to, like, organize and fight, that it does produce a radically different system of, like, interaction. And, and you know, it's hard to know without looking at, like, but because there have to be uh, Usenet groups associated with these, right? Oh, yeah. There, there has to be other modes of communication that are, like, layered on top of just the game. It can't be just images moving back and forth. We know too much about the internet in the mid-90s mm-hmm. to, to think that, right? So, so you know, we're, I think we do get a very partial picture here. 
But, you know, it is clear that people use these images and the open-endedness and the collaborative nature of them in order to do things that just would not be possible, um, you know, in maybe your day-to-day life and to explore things about yourself that wouldn't be possible in a place that is as safe as a thing could be probably within, you know, this um, structure. And so, you know, I... The, the dream of the 90s, <laughs> a digital, digital utopia, right, is still alive in some places uh, <laughs> and in, in some locations in a hidden veil uh, beneath Facebook's all-seeing all <laughs> eye. Uh, you know, the dream of the 90s lives. And, you know, I think in the best moments, that probably is true. And I, I think that that this chapter, if you're looking for places where people are manipulating digital systems to do things that maybe they weren't intended to do to begin with, I think this would be a really interesting comparative. You know, how was this happening in the 90s, you know, through what Schleiner's saying versus how is it happening now? Um, I, you know, I, I, something that's really interesting here is that all of these chapters have kind of a theory turn to them. Mm-hmm. And so here it is the Arendt, the Hana Arendt, mm-hmm. uh, space of appearance from the human condition. Um, and I, I did not find this particularly compelling. Mm-mm. Um, I don't know where, how did you take it? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty down on a rent in a general sense. So I have kind of like this gut check of like, oh, here we go. Hana rent. Yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe you don't have that. No, I do too. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I read the, on violence and, uh, Hana Arendt's opinions of the civil rights movement and I never recovered. Yeah. Uh, just a fundamental way. I have very, I, I have a difficulty with taking, um, a rinse, uh, hierarchization of what is political and what is not, uh, very seriously, uh, after reading, I, people can check that out on their own time. Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, you, you've looked at my notes, uh, you didn't send me your notes, so I have no idea what you've said. Oh, about I'm sorry. This. I'll do it right um, now. You can open them in the middle of the episode. But you can see here in my notes, I've, I've uh, made this point. So like on page 27, this is when we have like the turn into a rent. Um, and, uh, the, the pitch here from Schleiner is that, uh, it's possible for, <clears throat> uh, it's possible for games to kind of, uh, recreate or like to instantiate some version of what Arendt calls like the space of appearances, uh, which is sort of her, um, so this is from, I think the book it's mentioned here. Yeah. It's from the human condition. Uh, this is a kind of term for, uh, almost like her ideal space of politics, um Mm -hmm. yeah right it's like uh uh i mean here's how schleiner describes it right um a rent empties politics of material economic necessity and social pressures clearing the way for her aesthetic and agonistic space of appearance a liberating public space of collaborative aesthetic uh quote words and deeds suggestively drawn from ancient greek politics and culture um so uh, although she does not define the space of appearances with detailed examples, Arendt suggests the space is not only for political discussions, but also for poetry, tales, drama, and agon, for contests and competition. Uh, if this space can uh, encompass such creative, dramatic, and playful activities, then why not also allow for digital unfolding games? Which, is okay, I think it's fine that digital unfolding games would fit into Arendt's space of appearances. Um, but I think that the, the sticking point for me um, for a rent space of appearances here, which I think is like pretty, pretty accurately described as this, uh, like clearly modeled on an idealized form of, uh, the ancient Greek city state, right? This idea that, uh, once upon a time in Athens, you could just wander to the center of town where a bunch of dudes were hanging out and they were like debating politics or discussing art and like how society should be structured or like doing deep dives in philosophy, right? Th- th- this kind of thing. Um, and like, 
as an ideological fantasy, like that's pretty powerful. Uh, and the thing that Arendt doesn't really dig into and that Schleiner uh, doesn't dig into here is that this is like a, a, a function of a slave society. Uh, that like the this idea that in ancient Greece, uh, people right would just talk about things and debate them. And that's sort of like how civics progressed. Uh, that whole thing is predicated on the fact that like uh, Greeks were a, a slave keeping society. And like you didn't have to spend your time doing household management if you were a free person, right? A free man specifically, uh, because like that's like that was your privilege, right? You had a household that uh, had a whole bunch of people whose job was to run it for you while you went off and like pursued the finer things in life, right? Like that was your privilege as as a, a, a man of a certain station. Um, and so while I sort of and sympathetic to kind of the next move here, which I think is probably something like, well, couldn't we all just kind of be in in this uh, free space of association and discussion and debate and stuff like, yeah, maybe we could. But like the imaginary for me is like from the get go, right? Like the, the structure that you are like trying to evoke here uh, has this underside to it. And I think that's worth thinking about. What does it mean that historically, even when this kind of idyllic space could have existed, uh, it existed on the back of something um, horrible and inhumane? Yeah. And and I think we have to have similar, you know, if not conversations, then at least thoughts about the reality of like digital performance, mm -hmm. you know, di digital performance, uh, period, you know, our ability to access, especially now, right, like as we move into um you know, uh, embodied avatar kind of work, you know, that is accessible. You can buy what? You can buy an Oculus Quest for 200 bucks now. Um, you know, if you want to be digitally in 3D spaces with people, it is very cheap. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or not very cheap, but $200 is still a lot of money. But uh, way cheaper than it was five years ago and way cheaper than it was in 1992 or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when uh, <laughs> when James Bond, of course, had to, to build his from scratch. But uh, the, you know, and we have to think about the systems of power production, of uh, the systems of uh, physical computer production that largely emerge from the, the global south, right? Yep. Of extractive uh, capitalist policies that engage with the global south to make that happen. And then uh, the kind of labor networks that enable that, right? Uh, I mean, the factory conditions for making consumer electronics are not good. Mm -mm. Um, you know, they are uh, oppressive and violent and um, extractive uh, in every single way that we could think about that. So, which is not to say like, oh, we should all feel guilty for using a computer. That's not the reason that I'm saying any of these things. But I think your point is that, and it's one that we should consider seriously, is that um, every time we buy a system of relative freedom, we are buying it with something, mm -hmm. right? You know, it, it is happening at the cost of something else um, due to the, like the way our uh, societies are set up, right? You know, we, we live within late capitalism that is dependent on extraction. I mean, the only way capitalism grows is by finding new spaces to interact with more cheaply than, than one could produce things from it, right? I mean, this is the logic of uh, expansive imperialist capitalism. It's the logic of gentrification. It's the logic of uh, going back in history to find ideas like embodied VR and then relabeling them things like the metaverse, right? Mm -hmm. The mining of the history of concepts in and of itself is this kind of capitalist operation. 
um, uh, uh, Facebook, I'm sorry, Meta, uh, <laughs> is not interested in VR because it's like a thing for liberation and benefits human beings in any kind of way. They're interested, or, or that having a better attachment to our history from 30 years ago uh, would somehow be better for us. Their logic for it is it's an idea that can be mined for profit. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this is actually shockingly a place where hauntology is appropriate to see <laughs> right uh you know i know that, that we're gonna do like a sub show on, on hauntology or we, something at some we're point we're gonna have we? to i at some point we're gonna have to do an episode that's like capitalist realism plus uh ghosts of my life mm -hmm. like the mark fisher episode mm -hmm. so that i can like get all my animus about ontology out in the open so that's all to say right I, I, you know neither of us are condemning anyone for using a computer uh, it, uh i condemn computers and yet still continue to use them mm -hmm. uh but uh but rather to think about this kind of thing right if you to get a space of appearance to get uh you know the relative um capability to to express things in the open and to treat other people like equals what are the forces of unequalization Right. Mm -hmm. What are the forces of violence? What kind of societies based on their exclusions <laughs> might be produced by that? And that's a thing to, to be aware of, right? And it's a thing to to think about. I don't think you can just kind of uh, push space of appearances like this unalloyed good without thinking about the costs of it. Um, so I, I'm repeating what you're saying, but uh, forcefully and with much vigor and, and uh, heavy agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's really kind of... Uh, the first chapter uh, might have sent, might have seemed like we spent a long time talking about a rent, but actually that's going to come back later. So it's good that we we kind of have that grounding here. Hey, we're in the ad break. Ad break. Ad break. Uh, you know, we don't really run ads for anyone other than ourselves. You should go to patreon.com. <laughs> Actually, I'd like to touch. take a moment to tell you folks about a little product called Oreos. Uh, <laughs> a delicious God, little cookie. If we got, <laughs> if we got the Oreos. <laughs> account oh my god if we got the the serial professor account it, it would just it would change our life oh my god oh yeah we should be uh, the short serial professors we should be god we really beef that up but uh yeah so uh go to patreon.com slash range touch there is a link in the description down below if you like the show if it's beneficial to you if you think that uh you know that you've been listening to some episodes and you think it's worth your while maybe you give us some money for it buy us a cup of coffee a month uh at one dollar a month you get a little newsletter of what we've been up to at uh, three dollars a month you get access to our notes so just some pdfs of what we wrote down we always write down way more than what we're able to talk about in the couple hours that we do for these shows uh so uh three dollars you get our notes at five dollars you get some bonus episodes and a bonus podcast every month uh from range touch you get bonus episodes for just king things or other show and you can back at higher amounts and get other things, too. Uh, also, if you enjoy listening to this show, I promise you, you will enjoy listening to our other shows, um, often of which we were talking about in-depth game design analysis mm -hmm. and cultural context around it, I, which people, I think, enjoy this show for. So uh, you can check out Mages and Murder Dads, where we are playing through the... Uh, wait, did I say Mages and Murder Dads? You did. Mages and Murder Dads, <laughs> uh, where we are talking through... Uh, Danny and I are working through the Baldur's Gate games and their legacy, uh, at the time when this comes out, we are about to start releasing our Icewind Dale episodes, uh, which we've been recording. Yes, we've been recording them for eight months, <laughs> and, uh, and there's only like eight of them or something. It's just taken a long time for us to do it. We've both been very busy, but we're going to be doing that, really digging into the mechanics and the kind of 
uh, things that are being absorbed from D&D. It's actually going to be a really interesting comparison to come out with the next couple Game Study Study Buddies episodes, which you don't know about yet. you got to get to the end of this episode to find out what I'm talking about. Uh, you can check out the show that Michael and I do called Too Much Future. We're, we're playing through the Fallout games in a similar way, kind of a discussion podcast where we talk about what's going on in them, and we'll be starting probably over the summer, uh, uh, you know, June, July, somewhere in there, we'll, we'll start releasing our episodes of Fallout 4, mm-hmm. which is going to be really exciting. I think, uh, you know, uh, I, we'll probably see Boston Michael make an appearance. <laughs> it's just New regular England Michael. It's just regular Michael. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, uh, and uh, of course, we do Homestuck Made This World as well, where we are analyzing uh, and talking about Homestuck, uh, kind of in publication order. You can take out Just King Things, which is us doing that with the work of Stephen King. So if you like analysis, you like the way we talk about stuff, if you like the way that we engage with uh, media stuff, I promise you'll like the way that we engage with those objects. Anyway, I can let you get right on back to the program that you're listening to. Here is you going back to game studies. Study buddies. Pew! Uh, the second chapter is called Game Modding, Crossover Mutation and Unwelcome Gifts. Uh, and kind of the, the theoretical turn here is to uh, Michelle Serre, uh, which is yeah interesting. This is an honest and real question. Serre or Saris? I don't know. I've always heard Saris, but that doesn't mean that's right. I, I heard, like, the one time I have heard someone say that name out loud, it was Sarah, but I, okay. it could be Saris. I do not know. I believe it. Hey, can I get, can I, can we take, a, like, a little uh, detour here for me to tell you okay, something? Okay, sure. Are, are you, <laughs> are, you, are you, on this show? <laughs> <laughs> unheard of. Uh, so are you familiar with, uh, Michelle, I'm going to say Saris, because I have yeah, to. Go ahead. Are, are you, are you familiar with his work, like, in a broad sense? Yeah, in a broad sense. I have. Did you know he wrote a book on angelology? Wait, what? In the theory of in like the philosophy of angelology? Oh, hot damn! No, I should like that's that's like one thousand percent a thing that I should have read. <laughs> I know, I know. That's why I'm asking. This whole time when I was reading this chapter, I was I really the whole time was thinking, I wonder if Michael knows about this book on angelology. Yeah, he's a fascinating dude. Yeah. R- written a lot of stuff. He just passed away, right? Yeah, not too is long that, ago. Is that true? Yeah, not too long ago, unfortunately, but bizarre and interesting not bizarre and like oh he's like some sort of outsider figure but like truly a guy who was willing to look at the world and look at the way that people thought about the world and be like someone needs to think about this in depth and so the parasite the book that's being cited here is is probably the most famous work Mm -hmm. from him in the english language i think it was the first volume or one of the first volumes in the university of minnesota's post-humanity series Mm -hmm. um, which is like this big impactful series of books that um you know kind of changed the shape of humanities based inquiry you know 10 15 years ago and you know there's still a lot of cool books that come out in that i think that series is still ongoing but uh the but yeah uh yeah a book on angelology a, a a colleague of mine uh i think taught a book in environmental or not a book a class in environmental communication yeah. and taught the angelology book as part of it and uh uh, I think the the end result was like five students were like, this is one of the most interesting things I've ever read. Oh, hot damn. <laughs> and, oh, my God. And everyone else was like, why did we read a book on angelology? Oh. Um, but uh, maybe it wasn't environmental comm. It might have been like culture and comm. But in any case, something that I think you should check out. Yeah. Uh, I think you would enjoy. And if people are like interested in reading a really interesting figure in French theory who kind of is not... 
you know, like Derrida associated with deconstruction, Foucault, uh, you know, associated with genealogy and uh, the kind of archaeology method, Deleuze, you know, Deleuze stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, all of these big French names have this kind of approach that's associated with them that's kind of uniquely them, and there's often a school of thought that's there, you know, think about Baudrillard, mm -hmm. um, you know, any of those kind of people, right? But when you say the name, you think of a, like a set of concepts or commitments and Saris has those, but they are uh, quite a bit more oblique and stranger. Uh, and if you're interested in reading someone in the French theory tradition who is just a weird outlier mm -hmm. <laughs> from all of those people, but just as much you know respected within that system and just as as well kind of represented, often going to the same events and conferences and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of a latecomer as far as translation was concerned and, and attention paid to his work. You should maybe take yeah. check out Michelle. Saris, if you but, if you know Bruno uh, Latour, for instance, but you don't know Saris, then I would suggest checking out Saris because I think a lot of Latour makes sense as a response to to Saris. Yeah, a hundred percent. They are very much in conversation with one another. Mm -hmm. um, well, Latour is in conversation with Saris. Yeah. I don't really know one <laughs> way or the other if <laughs> Saris paid attention to Latour, but in this chapter gets kind of stapled on to Galloway or put into conversation with uh, Alexander Galloway. Um, and counter gaming because this whole chapter is about mods mm -hmm. yeah and sort of like orbiting this question of like i mean if you're in the game space at all in at this moment right if you're in games twitter or if you like keep tabs on like how gaming communities work uh orbiting this very thorny question of like what is going on when you're making a mod for a game like are you uh giving up your free labor uh to some like bigger structure or like corporate entity that is like uh parasiting off of you or are you like poaching elements from its catalog to make something of your own design uh and this is of course getting like more and more complicated as we get like official or like monetized mods uh now this book is a little bit before that so we don't have to uh run right into that thicket uh but nevertheless it, it all still applies right uh like what is happening uh, like who is parasiting whom uh when mods are being made and the answer ends up being more or less like well it kind of depends on what sort of mods are being made and how those mods are being taken up by the community yeah you know the the kind of traditional polls here are uh there are people who make games and there are people who make mods and the people who make games are uh, exploiting the people who make mods. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's like kind of the way that that happens, uh, you know, the way that conversation happens. I think that's kind of where this chapter lands, although you're right, it's a little bit more ambivalent here. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we get this kind of deeper theorization of what's happening, particularly when uh, arts groups, uh, Jody gets uh, cited here, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but what happens when kind of fine art, you know, digital artists, fine artists, people within the art sphere, what happens when they make mods that that take us away from like commercial reappropriation? Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's no universe in which Counter-Strike is going to absorb Jody and like, <laughs> you know, make it an official mod on the Steam store. Uh, well, actually, there is a world in which that happens. That would be a very smart maneuver for everyone, I think, uh, <laughs> in the sense of like it would be the ultimate <laughs> recapture. Uh, but I don't think that the Jody Collective would allow that to happen. If you're not familiar with the Jody Collective, uh, they come up in uh, Alexander Galloway's uh, gaming book that we have covered on the show before. Mm -hmm. And also, I would say before kind of. 
you know, uh, the marriage before Rod Humble or before Braid uh, were probably the most written about, you know, quote unquote, art game mm-hmm. um, people, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, in the um, in video game studies and, and that kind of thing. Jody showed up a lot from like 2000 to, to 2010 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were like pointing to what's going on in art games, Jody seemed to always show up to the to the extent that in. When I was more involved in talking with people who were studying and, and making art games explicitly, sometimes in an academic concept, uh, con- context, and I would say like 2012, 2013, everyone was like, we have to stop talking about Jody. Like, we have to <laughs> we aren't going to talk about game. Jody. We're not going to talk about not. Jody at all. Uh, Alexander uh, Galloway shows up and you go into the next room and you go back and he's not there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but anyway, so that's all to say Jody shows up here in a big way and that makes a lot of sense because of Schleiner's kind of connection to the late 90s, early 2000s game art scene uh, in which Jody casts a long, long shadow. Yeah, and uh, sort of the way that Jody shows up here is that Galloway critiques Jody for making sort of these uh, these art games that uh, essentially render the game unplayable, right? Like a uh, uh, sort of like game breaking, uh, quote unquote, uh, in kind of their moves. And Schleiner wants to say that actually, and this is going to become important in, in like the next chapter, right? Uh, actually making art games that render themselves unplayable is useful and important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it says, right, uh, the, the, the disruptive art game is important for, quote, clearing the way for a new order of play culture to come. Uh, and that's sort of like, that, again, that like sort of like points forward to the next chapter. But uh, the most interesting thing in this chapter to me is this discussion of uh, what this is from page 50, the cross dressed frag queens of Quake One. Yeah, so Schleiner wrote this piece, and I don't think it's the Lara Croft piece. Unfortunately, something that anyone who does any research into this time period in particular uh, always is going to run into is that many of the publications were digital-born mm-hmm. publications and digital-only publications. And so, like, I, I found a reprint of the uh, Laura Croft article, but it was paywalled, and I was reading this book over the last couple of days and didn't have a chance to ILL it. Um, and so, uh, so I didn't have a chance to go back and reread that, but I found an interview with Schleiner that links to the original piece here. Mm-hmm. And this piece is on a website that like just does not function. It like, it doesn't go anywhere. And, uh, I didn't have time to like internet archive I mean, that would have taken 15 minutes, but mm-hmm. I've had a pretty packed few days. So, uh, unfortunately, like you run into all these issues of like trying to recreate the arguments here, but, as Schleiner kind of summarizes it, that you know, uh, she wrote this piece that was basically like Quake One's multiplayer um, skins. You know, for for the multiplayer entities you can have, there are some women who are there, but they are kind of like uh, reformatted, big, bulky space well, marines. So the the issue is, uh, Quake One yes. had no like out yes. of the box yeah. like female characters, right. so all of the uh, player models are like the big bulky space Marines. And so when modders get on the scene and they're like, well, I want to like play as a girl for whatever reason. 
right? This could be like for uh, exploration or like representation or like titillation, right? Uh, I get the sense that a lot of this is like it's some dudes being dudes uh, in some places. Uh, they have this really weird situation where uh, they uh, have to make a skin that looks like a woman, but fits on the model of a big bulky space marine. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you get something that in like uh, in the, the big contrast here is that Quake 2 comes out and it has like a, uh, you know, female player character model. And that just like completely changes what the mod scene looks like, because prior to this, you have these characters running around who are uh, giant bulky space marines in sort of body type, but have been skinned and like the skins have been sort of designed and drawn uh, in various ways to like make them look like women running around in bikinis and things like yeah. that yes yeah there's this kind of stereotypical you know like nerd female body or the you know the the nerd property imagination of the female body mm-hmm. whatever right yeah mainly i i thought it was interesting because it was such a clear example of uh this dynamic whereby I mean, what's important about like the frag queens, right, uh, uh, prior to Quake 2 coming out is that um, there is something like uh, regardless of the uh, intentions of the people who are making these skins, uh, Schleiner uh, wants to argue that uh, there's something like a little queer about what's going on here because Mm -hmm. we have these like these body models that are made for one type of like particular hyper masculine character uh, that get like a feminized wallpaper. And uh, there's mm-hmm. something uh, like the the uh, way that the fact the, the way that in, in the community, like this doesn't seem to be understood, right? That it's just like, well, that's just what the, the body model is. And that's what we have to work with. Uh, the way that mm-hmm. that gets kind of like read through is interesting. And then the fact that Quake 2 ends up introducing like, you know, female character models uh, that completely like takes this uh, sort of weird subtext out of the game uh, for the next go around um, is an example of something. I mean, it, it, it's a very small example of how like, uh, you know, certain types of player behaviors like uh, get game developers or designers like th- there is a response, right? Like the game will change based on what players are doing. And what that does, right, is it eliminates a kind of prior uh, way of presentation, right? Like, the- yeah, yeah, she yeah, she calls this. This is on uh, page 50. It's, uh, the frag queens are, quote, an interrupted evolutionary offshoot of queer game characters. Right. So this is where we see kind of that ludic mutation idea coming in, that there's uh, a, a way that uh, like the the game did not have to get like, quote unquote, realistic uh, female like uh, uh player body or like yeah player character bodies or something right there is there is nothing that me that suggests that that is like an a fact of history and so like what are like what's the what's the game look like if uh the bodies just got like stranger and weirder in the ways that we skinned them became more and more experimental right it is sort of one way of thinking about this yeah absolutely mm-hmm. uh, and there are definitely people on the planet right and and this is like you know part of the the liberatory potential that I think Schleiner sees here, there are people who got this like strangely skinned, you know, strangely in quotation marks here, right? 
um, uh, Quake One body, and they were like, "Holy shit! This is the first time I've seen myself in a video game." Mm-hmm. Right, that has to happen. Right, like statistically, mm-hmm. that has to happen. Right, and so, and yeah, as you're saying, that when the the actual when the corporate apparatus captures that, they don't know what they've captured. Right, mm-hmm. like they they have misrecognized what was interesting there or beneficial or positive. Uh, and then programmed it back into the, you know the Vallejo logic right, right. of of like um, video game fantasy dark fantasy properties or whatever mm-hmm. um, and yeah I mean I, I do I I think that this is probably one of the strongest like explorations of like what's going on here mm-hmm. um, and you know what happens when players actually do kind of affect the game. And this is of course I don't think we have to get super into it, but basically Schleiner is reading the three kind of different types of parasitism mm-hmm. that Michelle Saris uh, evokes in, in that book. And then is saying like how each of these examples kind of run into those versions. Right. So it was like the parasite is noise. The parasite is like a host parasite. And then a third one, which I'm blanking on right now. I don't remember either. Um, I think like the parasite of the parasite might be the third yeah. one. I always just think of the little mice in the tax collector's pantry. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Read the book to find out what that's about. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then sort of the the end of this chapter then is kind of a a uh, Schleiner gesturing forward to kind of like the the hoped for future, which is basically like a modding commons, like uh, mm-hmm. you know modders. Uh, modders like sharing resources or having like a database of resources that they can all draw from and then like a a hope that modders are going to become more interested in making game breaking mods uh, essentially right Uh, as kind of like i I don't know as as sort of like artistic or activist statements um you know uh, to to talk about the the parasite here right uh that modders will become parasites who are interested in generating more noise for the system Right. The the sort of like supposedly clear system of the game gets gets noisier and more chaotic as modders kind of introduce uh, alternative possibilities that the game itself has tried to foreclose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a interesting thing. I, I do wonder, you know, because uh, this this was originally written in 2012 and then kind of updated, but it doesn't seem like a huge amount in 2017. You know, I now we're ten years on from the original writing of this, and from this initial argument, twenty years on, mm-hmm. uh, basically. And I do kind of wonder, you know, the biggest uses of game mods today, and I mean biggest in the sense of like the things that I see the most often are like generating content, mm-hmm. like for YouTube channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like participating in like this other kind of parasitic economy, really. Uh, creating pornography. Mm-hmm. And uh, creating Crusader Kings 3 total conversion mods. <laughs> right? And, yeah. You know, so I wonder, like, I don't, it kind of seems to me there's like just like a, in a lot of these interface through Patreon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and direct donation in order to get access to them or to get access to early builds or like finance their transformation or whatever. And so, you know, it just seems like what happened is that mods became their own like sub-commercial enterprise yeah. uh, rather than anything truly transformative. Uh, you know, transformative of the economic model. Uh, and I guess maybe that's okay. Like mm-hmm. in, in the realm of late capitalism, there's way worse stuff that could happen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that was my same sort of feeling. I was just like, well, you know, I look at the world today and it seems to me that mostly what mods are about is like uh, customizing a game to your predilections, whatever those may be, yeah. uh, mm. or uh, straight up quality of life. In fact, like uh, making the game work better uh, by fixing a whole bunch of bugs or something, right? Uh, uh, in yeah. some ways, like uh, reducing the the supposed noise that's already present. Yes. I mean, doing truly just uh, <laughs> free labor. Yes. <laughs> to, for everyone to make it, which shout out to you if you're doing that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You make New Vegas playable yes. for everyone who's not Michael and I yeah. <laughs> playing unmodded stuff. And like, you know, uh, uh, you know <laughs> I, thank you for letting Witcher. people be able to save outside so the game doesn't crash every time you load the save. Oof. Yeah. Well, that's how it goes. But uh, chapter three. Mm hmm. Activist game rhetoric, clockwork worlds, broken toys, and harrowing missions. Uh, this is, uh, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about this chapter. Um, I have a truly infinite amount to say about this chapter, but uh, <laughs> I don't have to, I don't have to do that. What, what do you have to say about it? And then I'll, I'll pop it at the end. Uh, so this is a, a chapter that reads a, a selection of serious games, which was kind of a, a term that was very popular at this point about 10 give or take years ago uh to describe games that had uh like activist intent right like sort of consciousness raising or like political consciousness consciousness raising and so one example here is uh the game september 12th uh, that's meant as a critique of the war on terror uh that we've talked about before almost like i know we've talked about it before on one of another episode i don't remember specifically which one uh, yeah, I don't know either. Weirdly enough, I, I'm, I'm trying to think. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but but yeah, I, yes, it 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 might be one of the most written about video games mm -hmm. up there with Jody. Yes, <laughs> uh, in this game, just to like refresh your memory, if you if you uh, uh, don't remember the last episode, like we we don't. Um, uh, Krogan. We talked yeah. about it in Krogan. Okay. Yeah. So this this is like a, a a game where you're supposed to like you have like this view of like a little like Middle Eastern uh, city. Um, and you are like doing like tactical strikes against it to take out terrorist, uh, locations. Um, but the, and they're like little NPCs, right? Little people walking around. Some of them are terrorists and some of them are just like villagers or, or like townspeople. Um, and as you, uh, start taking out terrorist cells and like blowing up parts of, uh, the map, uh, you rather than actually like eliminating terrorists, uh, the regular like civilian NPCs who are just walking around, uh, they become terrorists. So you, uh, like the game puts you in a position where you have a mandate and then like the mechanics of the game work explicitly against that mandate. If you play the game, uh, you end up in this like spiral of loss where you can never meet your win condition. Uh, you can only just blow up more and more stuff. Uh, and so this is like exemplary of like uh, a kind of broken toy tactic uh, is is the the term that Schleiner develops to talk about this, uh, where games can uh, uh, most effectively uh, make kind of political statements or like uh, consciousness raising moves for the player uh, if they kind of bungle their their own uh, rules. Uh, and sort of in contrast to this is McDonald's game. Um, by uh paolo Petercini. did he do that yeah, yes yeah yes. it's a mall industria yeah. uh and uh unfortunately here i just need to flag this mcdonald's does not have an a in it yeah 
so right yeah. like uh, <laughs> in this chapter someone did a find replace mm-hmm. of mc donald's to mac donald's mm-hmm. so it's it's mcdonald's it's like it's like here my dad say mcdonald's yeah <laughs> he'll he'll add that a in every time mcdonald's mcdonald's um, yep but yeah, so th- this game is like uh, intended as a critique of like uh, the fast food like business model, specifically like, you know, McDonald's uh, in terms of like how much land use is, is going on. Like, how do you clear that land? How do you acquire it? Uh, like, ooh, how how do you like have all of these cattle that you're maintaining? Uh, what conditions are they being maintained in? Uh, what sort of diseases are they developing because they're being so badly maintained? How does that meat get processed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of the kind of like escalating problems of running a global fast food chain uh, as kind of this satirical little game uh, rendered as kind of like a tycoon simulator. And so you get into points where like, you know, you have to start like, like you can uh, start making conditions worse for your workers in order to drive up profits and, and things like that. And one of the uh, well, basically the reading of that Schleiner produces here is that because this game, uh, because the game logics work kind of smoothly, right, in line with with a normal tycoon game uh, that the player can sort of ignore the content specifically of what they are doing uh, in order to just focus on optimizing like the 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 play loop. Right. Um, and in that process, like not really notice or care about the social commentary that's happening. Uh, it's just about making the numbers go up. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little confused in this chapter about how September 12th is critiqued along those same lines. Yeah. Because basically she she sets up the, these two things, right? She says there's the game procedurality argument that goes through like Frosca uh in bogos mm-hmm. basically and and uh uh murray mm-hmm. right that that uh you can use processes to make arguments yes you know in a general sense and and then the critique of procedurality is precisely the one that you just said right that the game system as a way of absorbing you ultimately overwhelms you and you end up playing uh for optimization and not like taking anything from it mm-hmm. uh, and i agree in a general sense that probably is true in the sense that i have been in many classrooms in which people totally did not care i wouldn't say didn't see or di- or ignored but just didn't care about the argument being made in order to like play the game more optimally i've definitely seen that happen in an undergraduate classroom in a graduate graduate classroom that phenomenon is true with serious games quote unquote mm-hmm. i've seen it um so so there's that but then there's this so she says that that's the critique of procedurality and then she evokes this thing that she calls the broken toy tactic mm-hmm. um, and the broken toy tactic is modeled off of heidegger's broken hammer mm-hmm Got to go to Nazi philosophy for this one. Can't right. go anywhere else. I oh, thought it was so only... fascinating that we went to Heidegger for this and not Brecht. Yeah, yeah, right. You could easily go to Brecht. No question. We could go to, uh, you know, uh, a Marxist materialist philosopher. No, we got to go to a uh, ontologically focused Nazi. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm just, I'm holding it down for critique of Heidegger. I think he can take it. I think it'll be fine. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, it, but precisely because, right, the, that uh, Heidegger's, uh, this is one of the more famous arguments that gets extracted from being in time, which is basically that it is only in the process of something uh, interrupting our kind of day-to-day processes that we, that our day-to-day processes as a set of kind of conventions within what, what Heidegger calls an epoch. Um, that we can be aware of them, mm-hmm. right? So it, so it interrupts the kind of, you know, when you're uh, using the hammer and it breaks, 
you immediately are like, oh shit, my whole world that is centered around the day-to-day operations of things working no longer fits in the way that it did before, right? So, so you truly understand the function of the hammer in the way that you took um, advantage of it or the way that you just took it as uh, a part of your day-to-day life. You then understand that situation precisely because of that. I'm filing a lot of edges off of this to explain it uh, most effectively. I don't know how uh, truly useful, having read this a lot, having read a lot of people explaining Heidegger's Broken Hammer, I don't know how much the specifics really matter to anyone's life. If you're listening to this and you're getting enraged at my um, uh, uh, elision of some of the finer details of the Broken Hammer, sorry, I think you'll be okay. But... She says that that uh, that the broken toy, right? So the idea of creating games that fundamentally break or don't function or interrupt themselves or are not resolvable, uh, that that would be more beneficial because it would kind of create this like Heideggerian moment of like, oh my gosh, d- did you know that you know I don't know uh, resource extraction is violent? Mm-hmm. Dang, but you know because the game breaks. And I, you know, in a general sense, I think. That having a game that breaks as a part of its like system, uh, you know, uh, Kent Sheely had a really interesting game a few years ago. Uh, that was a browser game that just ate more and more memory mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. your browser until it crashed your Chrome browser. Yeah, um, and right, and I thought that that was like a really interesting like you know uh, uh, evocation. It was a really easy way to say, "Hey, did you know that even though we think about digital spaces as kind of floating in the ether as immaterial, whatever, that there are physical hard limits to what happens when you play these systems, right? They'll shut your computer off if they get too hot, whatever. And it was a really easy game example to be like, hey, you should maybe reflect on the the substrate or the systems that your games emerge out of, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the kind of broken toy tactic that that Schleiner's evoking here. But, but it does require... Because September 12th gets kind of evoked as uh, an easy procedural game here. Mm-hmm. W- but she does not talk. And I was just writing. The reason I like have strong opinions about this or even thinking about it too hard is I actually just wrote a chapter that was talking about kind of cri- critiques of procedurality. Mm-hmm. Again, I wish that I had read this uh, six weeks ago rather than uh, this week. But uh, September 12th has a whole title card at the beginning that's like, this is not a game. You cannot win this. It is truly impossible to do so. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, you know, a, a simulation of a particular ideological specter, right? It's at the beginning. You have to click through it to play the game. And so, like, September 12th doesn't have any... It it, it doesn't ask you to do any of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It, it specifically is saying, hey, this, this thing doesn't cohere into anything. You should really think about what that means. Mm-hmm. It, it is the broken toy. Right. Uh, by design. It tells you it's going to break. Yeah. yeah. It's a toy that tells <laughs> you so, I don't work. Yeah, yeah, I don't work, and you can try, but it won't work. Um, and I have plenty of criticisms of September 12th. I'm I'm deeply critical about the efficacy of that thing, but I wouldn't say that Frosca is not upfront about what it's trying to do. And I, I have a lot of respect for that game and that object. Um, and so I find it really strange that Schleiner, in order to make this argument, is really trying to silo these things off into one another. I similarly think that, you know, uh, that... that she she cites Bogos simulation fever, but doesn't cite the fact that simulation fever from unit operations exists precisely to say not everything fits in the simulation. And it is the excess of what is in the simulation that like provides weird and interesting edges. Of of course, uh uh pulling on Derrida's archive fever to talk about that, right? Like what goes in the archive? What can fit within a simulation itself? So I I 
I don't know. I've got a lot of, I think this is, let me, let me say the things I think are positive here. I think this is a really interesting chapter. I think this is an amazing starting point for thinking about criticisms of proceduralism, which I think are important. I think they are things that we should really think about precisely because it is so infrastructural in the way that we think about games and game studies. I think it is wide open for critique, and I think the people that were uh, architects of proceduralism are open to engagement and critique. I think Bogost has moved beyond that mm-hmm. in a serious way in his in his especially most recent work, like Play Anything. And I think that like that's okay. Like things change and things move. But I, I the the flip side of that is I think that that Schleiner makes some silos here that are a little too neat in order to make the argument work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I think, I think more could have happened here to complexify what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's made sort of even stranger that like by the end, she gives an example of, uh, like one example of like the broken toy tactic is, uh, watching videos of Sims playthroughs on YouTube where, mm-hmm. where, oh, yeah. where, where kids are just like, uh, murdering little Sim families essentially, Um, And this is put forth as an example of the broken toy tactic uh, because it shows people like not uh, falling in line with the mandates of the game uh, where the mandates of the Sims here are taken to be kind of like the the typical, uh, you know, get get your little dude a job and like get more money and and, uh, improve your house and your life and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And sort of I mean, what's confusing there to me is that like, well, not really. I mean, like, that's a way you could play the game, but this isn't uh, these people who are murdering their sim families on YouTube aren't really breaking the game. They're just playing it in a different way like that. This was a game that was designed, I think, for you to for for the people knew like, okay, people are eventually going to like build a room with a fireplace and a whole bunch of wicker furniture and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I 100 percent. Right. Or like uh, deleting the deleting the ladder out of the pool. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, like the co- the most common action in a Sims game, I think. Yeah. And it's all more to the point of like what came up in the first chapter, <clears throat> which is that like doll play is not a uh, preparatory. Right. Not inherently. Like sometimes it's just like smashing things. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and so, look, I I think this is a thing that I can say that is like a unilateral positive here, whatever my like criticisms or or kind of pokey critiques are here. I really appreciate and am willing to go along with what Schleiner is doing, which is like an unvarnished defense of human autonomy in the face of systems of domination mm-hmm. that like at the end of the day, we should celebrate people playing games in ways that are not planned and we should focus on that and think of it, and we should be deeply critical of the ways that uh, mainline game studies and the way that uh, game development talks about games, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I think like it's some basic level of my being. I think that just having someone be like the thing that is dominant is wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, even if I don't agree with them at the end of the day, I think that's always a beneficial kind of poke here. And so I think this chapter, even though I really disagree with some of the things that are happening here, some of the arguments, I think it's really beneficial because it at least is getting a lever underneath some of the stuff in ways I think are, you know, are often right. So, you know, she writes on, this is on 72, quote, immersion in the clockwork world's operations is a state of concerned absorption that is to a certain extent alienated and blind not only to its own existence, but to the larger repercussions of the operation. And let, let me say the positive thing here. 
I think someone just in no uncertain terms saying that the way that we valorize immersion might be bad Mm -hmm. is good. Mm -hmm. We need more people saying that, right? The other side is, look, I don't think immersion exists. (laughs) Like, I just don't, I don't experience it. I think the way that people talk about it is quite strange. Uh, You know, I think the Christopher Patterson uh, critique there is really compelling, um, you know, that, that why, why would we valorize that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, like what are the implications of doing so? Um, I think that people are often very aware of the things that they are doing. You know, I, I don't think that like a, uh, what we might call like a naive, uh, culture industry argument. I don't think that that's true. I think people are very often aware of what they're doing in ways that are destructive to them or destructive to other people, or just like, um, passively um, uh, negative mm-hmm. in a broad way. And I think they're aware of that and that they don't care. And I think that's fine. Like, I, I don't think that every game space operation should be one in which we're thinking about, like, the ultimate positive or negative impact of what we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about earlier, right? Uh, you know, uh, the computational hardware that we're using to record this podcast has a lot of implications uh, that are associated with its production. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have to be worried about that at every single moment because we can't be. But... Right. Like, you know, I, I, I think I'm glad that Schleiner is here in no uncertain terms making these arguments, even if, you know, my where I land here is a little bit more wiggly um, and less certain about the Manichaean nature of, of these two poles. Mm-hmm. What do you think about harrowing missions here? Uh, so harrowing missions are a term for that. This is Schleiner's term for a type of game uh, that. Uh, I did not put this in my notes, but she gives actually a pretty good uh, a definition oh, of this. It's, uh, uh, it's 76. Yeah, I was going to say, I, just, I saw it in your notes. Uh, 76, oh, yeah. Uh, quote, a harrowing mission is an immersive game challenge that generates empathy for real world sufferers of a crisis by depositing the player into a narrowly narrowly crafted game predicament. Um, and I think her key example here is the game Darfur is Dying. Um, am I right about that? Because yep. there, there's like a yep. couple of other things that uh, show up in this chapter that that might have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The main the main one is Star Forest Dying, yeah. which, uh, again, is another kind of uh, uh, serious game that's been written about a lot mm-hmm. over the course of, of uh, you know, the years. And when the last the only time in grad school that I took a straight up game studies seminar, I think it was maybe 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. Uh, we, this was like part of the course. Mm-hmm. You know, this 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 is solid, solidly in the canon of like games that people talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Darfur is Dying, uh, if, if you're not familiar with it, is a game that is, it's essentially a survival sim. Uh, like you're, you know, in kind of like a, a refugee encampment, I think. Uh, and you have to go out and like get uh, get water and supplies and like come back to the camp. And, uh, you know, everything is is kind of tight and, and harrowing, right? Uh, per per the, the term that she comes up with. Um, but what saves this from being like instrumentalizable in the way that uh, she's critiqued before is that the game is also like constantly interrupting you with tool tips to remind you of like websites you can go to to donate to charities or uh, to learn more about the situation in Darfur and things like that, um, which... Uh, I mean, it's interesting to consider that uh, in line with what you said about uh, September 12th and how it opens with the screen basically telling you that it's not going to work. Uh, But I think the Mm -hmm. difference here is that, uh, you know, rather than that screen talking about itself, uh, what's really important for Schleiner is the fact that like these are tool tips that are sending you to like other websites where you can do something about the situation that you are learning about through the game. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, I you know, I I just I have kind of a mental block here that is all of of my own making, right? Mm-hmm. Like I and this has nothing to do with Schleiner's argument, which is that I the the minute that you begin saying that there is a uh, an immersive game experience that will definitely generate empathy in an audience. Mm-hmm. I, I the wheels start turning and I like they they grind out <laughs> you know like I just can't we're stripping the gears here yeah uh, in my brain because I just I don't know if I believe that mm-hmm. like on a, on a basic fundamental level of like I just don't know if the claim works for me we have we have so many people uh, you know especially kind of post twenty fourteen and uh, you know the queer games movement uh, you know kind of rising and splintering and all of the things that happened with that and the huge amount of writing about it and the huge amount of developers writing about it and also people who were not associated with that who were making games about their lives but were very resistant to uh someone immediately believing that they understand them or their situation by playing the game right Mm -hmm. um i i don't think that there is any representation that immediately gives you access to a subjectivity of another person i think that there are games that give you access to a subjectivity that is fundamentally like a morphed one Mm -hmm. right so it is one that is what you were in your moments ago and then what you are now which is different than what you were before Mm -hmm. right i think that's that's called subjectification subjectivation for me that's all felix guattari uh you are more than welcome to read about it in my book i have a whole chapter about this kind of stuff um and like my theory of it Mm -hmm. but uh you know and i got there by reading all these other people right but I, i you know i I don't know what I think the politics are broadly of producing a lot of representations of uh, minoritized or underrepresented or people in peril or violated. I I don't know how I feel about like creating games about those people and then kicking out to a donation website and being like, we've done politics, yeah. right? Uh, and I don't think that, I you know, I don't get a sense that the people who made Darfur's Dying, I don't get a sense that they're like, thoughts about this in there either right i i think in some ways schleiner is backing up the the i don't know um the way those games work into a more simplified position mm-hmm. you know i i think the game itself is i think dark forest dying is way more complicated in its approach and thoughts about these things than schleiner is um theorizing it through through the heroin mission idea but you know i i i think one of my concerns is, does the heroin mission idea produce more harms than it solves for? Mm-hmm. Meaning that when if, if we play empathy games or games that are meant to simulate a very destructive moment in someone's life or set of moments in someone's life and feel like we have resolved that by um, paying money to a charity... Mm-hmm. Uh, that feels to me like the same problem of procedural, uh, you know, her critique of procedural games here, right? Or procedural gameplay, which is like, we have artificially resolved this conflict, mm-hmm. you know, in some kind of way. And maybe that's where the broken toy comes in, right? Like maybe the best version of this, of of the heroin mission, is one in, in which there's no possible resolution. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, you can't you can't win. Uh, it's it's so uh, you know destructively hard <laughs> that you just can't can't get through it and then you realize oh shit this is like not easily resolved and maybe the one thing you can do is give money to people who are actually trying to solve this issue and then like don't feel like you've resolved the problem maybe that's it mm-hmm. but that is really not the kind of response that i've seen to the majority of empathy games especially kind of post 2012 2013 2014 which was a lot of people who got to vacation in marginalized 
identities. And we saw a lot of marginalized creators say, hey, please don't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we this is bad and, and patronizing, mm -hmm. um, which is not to say everyone feels that way, but we have seen quite a few people who have. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really conflicted about this whole chapter, but I'm really conflicted about this chapter. And, you know, got to be cards on the table. I'm conflicted about this chapter because I write about both of these things, mm -hmm. you know, both of these big topics of like, what do games do to people? Uh, you know, especially in in terms of their politics and how they imagine themselves, and what do, do procedural games do? Like, what are the what is the efficacy of procedural games from like a theoretical perspective? And so, I please don't take the last fifteen minutes of me talking about this as like dismissal out of hand. I take this really seriously, and I really wish for both of these pieces I had written, I had read Schleiner earlier, so I could have been in conversation. Um, but right, uh, you know. Uh, Human life takes place phenomenally in time. Did you know that, Mike? No, uh, I wasn't uh, aware. I thought all points in time were accessible at once, as if I were operating some sort of database. Well, uh, of course, of course, you would think that, Mike. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but so it, that's all to say. Uh, the reason I'm like having this kind of very nuanced uh, critique here, or these thoughts, is that like I care about them a lot, um, and they are you know quite close to my heart, and, and things that I think seriously about quite often, especially someone who teaches primarily undergraduates and whose job is really centered around working with undergraduates and trying to get 18, 19, 20 year olds to think about their position in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think games can be really effective toward that, but I am also extremely resistant to easy answers about it. Um, and in, in kind of simplifications of it. And I don't want, you know, cause I I've taught quite a lot of like, especially video game centered independent studies over the past couple of years. And students who are engaged with games, you know, come in with like games are effective in XYZ ways. And, you know, I really try to get people to think more seriously about like, well, what about ABC? Mm -hmm. And what if XYZ aren't what you think they are? Um, and, you know, I, I, I think the Schleiner leads us down a path that's maybe too simple for me to be happy with. Uh, but again, let, let me say the positive here. I think this is a really great starting point. I think this is a thing that uh, I, I really have a lot of, uh, admiration for the way the argument is constructed, even if I don't uh, agree with the argument. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry to monologue about this entire chapter, Michael. Well, that's okay, because now we can talk about, because I think some of these, uh, uh, I don't know, tendencies or questions carry forth into the, the next chapter, chapter four, if you're okay to move on there. I am happy to move All on. All right, so this is called City as Military Playground Contested Urban Terrain. Um, and this is this is an interesting counterpoint to the previous chapter where uh, Schleiner is working within kind of the field of what we what, uh, she never uses this term, I think, explicitly. But like what we've said uh, a couple times now is like the, the the field of empathy games that were very popular in sort of the late 2000s and early 2010s. Um, uh, and sort of like the, the problems with that that we've already outlined. Now we're moving into uh, the issue of militainment which I, I feel like these are like complementary in some way, uh, as, at least insofar as uh, from Schleiner's perspective, uh, what we are seeing in video games is like an increasing representation of cities uh, in urban centers as places of military combat uh, and how this sort of aligns with like actual things that are happening in the world as uh, in this, the, the, the theory drop here is Paul Virilio talking about how like uh, warfare has changed. It's not about two forces meeting on a battlefield anymore. It is now about uh, 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 contesting and controlling like urban nodes uh, uh, and sort of like population centers. Um and so uh, this this issue of militainment, right, uh, takes on the res like different resonances in that, like, to what degree is this uh, 
you know, uh, inoculating right people uh, against the idea that like war, like war just happens in cities now. Like war happens mm-hmm. in the places where where a lot of people live, where you're going to live, where there's going to be like civilian casualties and things like that, um, and sort of the, the various apparatuses that are coming to to fruit or coming to bear on like how war is operated now in the day to day, and how does our kind of like entertainment economy uh, fit into that? Um, what is weird about this chapter is that about halfway through, there is kind of a switch over from these questions to uh, essentially like uh, hacktivists doing like uh, uh, sort of like protests or like events in multiplayer games. Um, and then like the connective move here is to think about the situationists, what we already talked about, uh, and, and the situationist derive, uh, you know, sort of like their their nighttime jaunts through the city um, and how uh, they took the, the you know, the, the sort of idea for the situation situationist derive is taking this uh a uh, space of increasing modernization and like interfacing it in it in a non-standard way, right? We're not going to like walk down the streets and like stay where we're supposed to. We're going to like go down these dark alleys. We're going to like sneak into condemned buildings, uh, uh, go to places where we're not supposed to be, and and you know sort of like run from the cops or whatever when when uh, the night watchman hears us. Um, this uh, gets presented as a model for what like hacktivists are doing uh, in like Counter-Strike uh, or like uh, uh, Dead in Iraq is uh, one of the, the mm-hmm. projects that comes up and which we've talked about before, um, which yeah, I, the Joseph Joseph DeLapp project. Yes, uh, which was uh, America's Army. Was that right? Uh, was it? I don't remember. I think that was Counter-Strike. OK, well, it was I also in Counter-Strike where it was, uh, you know, uh, listing the, the, the names of the dead uh, uh, anyway in a multiplayer first person shooter game. And uh, the, the intent being to like uh, America's Army. Yeah, you were. OK, yeah. The intent being right to uh, force people who are playing this game for like, quote unquote, normal reasons uh, to. Uh, countenance like the reality of what's happening in the world and like that war is a real thing and that it has real material costs. Um, and then Schleiner herself has a project called Velvet Strike uh, that is about uh, uh, putting up sort of like anti-war and sort of like uh, liberatory queer sprays in Counter-Strike maps um, and and trying to do a kind of similar thing, right? Sort of uh, uh, interrupting the the normative flow of the game uh, in order to do a kind of another move of, of uh, consciousness raising for for some sort of player base. Um, mm-hmm. So there's like a weird switch over here where uh, like the the descriptions of the war games feel almost like they're talking about games from like later on because the, the examples here of, of of these performance pieces are all kind of like early two thousands Iraq war, uh, uh, based. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I, uh, had a similar kind of vibe about like the break point in the middle of this chapter. Um, and, and also it's just, you know, uh, in, in some ways this is a defense of a political project that feels like it's a little bit from a different era. Yeah. Like I haven't heard anyone talk about culture jamming in a very long time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I am, I think all these projects are very cool. Um, I am skeptical of their efficacy in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a broad sense, I, I think about something and, and, and I, you know, I haven't talked to Angela Washko about this, but I think of, you know, a comparative in my mind of something like dead in Iraq, 
uh, which is, you know, um, confrontational but non-communicative mm-hmm. in the sense of, like, you get on, you're listing all the names of the people who died. It's it's effective in the sense of people start engaging with it. They're, they're saying, what is going on here? Um, you know, but it's, it's a um, uh, broadcast base, mm-hmm. right? And I think about something like Angela Washko's project in World of Warcraft, right? The the kind of feminist intervention stuff of like going into Orgrimmar and talking about and saying, "Hey, does anyone want to talk about feminism?" and then having these long form conversations with people that are like partially anthropologically, you know, of what do people think about feminism, but also it's performance, right? It's this piece of performance art that's about drawing out this conversation and talking about it and kind of getting to some sort of understanding about like what is the gameplay performance of a particular kind of imagination of gendered embodied experience, whatever. Right. These are very different types of project, obviously. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not comparing them in terms of like what, um, you know, what, what they do, they're, they're different. Uh, but to me, uh, you know, when I'm thinking about like, what are things that I think are like moving the boulder that is culture in some way, or like having a situationist style effectiveness to them, or or uh, you know, uh, moving the cultural bar? I I just don't know if I think that like Velvet Strike, which gets talked about here too, uh, or Dead in a Rock, or like the the efficacies that I'm interested in as far as like activist art is concerned. Although Velvet Strike is really fascinating. Maybe I need to pull that back a little bit. Did, had you ever heard of this before? I hadn't, no. I think it was, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. So they, they uh, got a bunch of different artists to basically make skins for which game? I'm, I'm oh, on the it game. is Counter-Strike. It is Counter-Strike. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Because one of the original Counter-Strike uh, terrain modelers was involved in it, too. Mm-hmm. And so they made sprays, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, they made sprays for the game. And so people were spraying all of this like anti-war rhetoric all over the game space. And uh, someone was at the same time unrelated was doing it for TF2 apparently. And it was generating like all kinds of controversy and people in the game were like, why are you doing this? And, but then there was this additional communicatory element afterward of like people sending emails and there being information that they could be distributed. And so like when I'm thinking in my mind of like political art that like does a thing that to me felt a lot more kind of appropriate here. And, and this is the one she is more involved in. So maybe uh, that makes a lot more sense, but um, I thought that was I, I thought those were very interesting. But yeah, like this chapter also like summons up the specter of the temporary autonomous zone, mm-hmm. which which again I have not heard about in twenty years probably. Uh, you know, as far as writing of, of taking the, those ideas seriously as as like political efficacious arguments. So uh, yeah, I thought the I thought the chapter was a little bit strange um and a little bit out of sync with like what i'm thinking about in 2022 mm-hmm. uh, i think the concerns are very real though yes um like right so this is on 86 in the militant ludic diversion virtual and paved streets are mapped and occupied in humanitarian operations of population management of refugee transport and of disaster relief of biocontrol are conducted virtually sometimes in preparation for missions in actual cities and like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I think that the the plenitude of things that we have read that deal with the way the the MIC, the you know, the the MIC, the the military industrial complex, the way that that runs into games is exactly what Schleiner is saying. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that the, the what is really cool about the chapter and beneficial is that while some of these art pieces have showed up in the other pieces that we've read here, and I'm thinking about. Uh, Mondo Nano. I'm thinking about uh, gameplay mode, and there's another one. Um, um, I'm thinking some of this might have come up in Games of Empire as well. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, those things, this is the first time we've heard a curator and an artist theorizing about mm-hmm. it. And I think that's an interesting and beneficial perspective. And I, I enjoyed it reading this chapter. I think it's really beneficial uh, in a broad sense, uh, again, to kind of ping off of and think with more than to like kind of unilaterally accept what's going on here. You know, I uh, at the end of the day, I, I, when, I, when I weigh in my mind what Dead in Iraq does for in Iraq uh, does, my southernism came out. Mm-hmm. Iraq. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, the uh, you know when I weigh that against like hundreds of thousands of dead people, I just like the situationist pales in comparison in my mind. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I just can't. I'm too much of a like. I again maybe a naive materialist, naive determinist. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I just can't. I can't get in that mode where I'm like, oh yeah, of course, political effectiveness. Right? Like because I just you know there's so many dead people. Yeah. Um, and I can't decouple that in my mind from it. So I have a hard time buying some of these arguments sometimes, but really good. I, I, I enjoyed reading the chapter. I think it's a useful provocation and does a really interesting thing, kind of bringing Hozinga in um, and complicating the model of the magic circle um, and uh, kind of kind of buying some of those arguments, but also critiquing them. I, I, I enjoyed reading the chapter for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next chapter, then, if you have nothing else to say, uh, is toys of biopolis um and this is uh this is just the, the certainly the strangest chapter if only because uh this is just like a, a sort of like long form uh almost allegorical reading of an anime series uh like allegorical with regard to like sort of the concerns of this book um uh because ultimately the the anime series which is uh deno coil from 2007 uh, both like models a lot of the concerns that uh, Schleiner obviously has and that Schleiner like is sort of invested in. Uh, but then the series ends in a way that uh, she is extremely opposed to. And so it becomes uh, almost kind of like a uh, if you think of like if you're practicing, I don't know, a tennis strike or something, right? It becomes kind of like the wall that she's bouncing a ball against in order to kind of like generate sort of ideas about uh, like the structure of society and like, I don't know, uh, what is preferable and what is not, uh, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, basically, the 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 story of Dino Coil, which I have not seen. Uh, to be clear. So everything that I know is basically coming out of uh, how Schleiner presents this, but it's like a a sort of near future science fiction about a bunch of kids in a city uh, uh, that's it's sort of um, I get the sense that like I don't know if it's post-apocalyptic. It feels like the 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 structure of everyday life has changed somehow like that we 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 it's not like full cyberpunk um but it seems like uh there's like cyberpunk elements right it's about these kids who run around a city where augmented reality is extremely commonplace um all or most of them wear like uh AR glasses uh and they like play weird games on their own uh and like basically like because because the city is completely sort of controlled by the company that runs the AR uh, apparatus 
owned and controlled by the air apparatus. Uh, everyone is constantly being sort of like monitored and surveilled and like the kids for fun, uh, like come up with like ways to get around the system, right? They know they're being monitored. So how can we get into a place where we're not supposed to be and like play there? Uh, and then there's all sorts of like madcap adventures that apparently are happening. Um, but eventually, uh, you know, as, as stories kind of move, uh, this, this brings them into confrontation with like the, the mega corporation, um, and they learn all sorts of like terrible seedy things about the the corporation, right? Things that sh show that maybe this uh, uh, entity should be resisted. We need to fight back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, the thing that Schlein and this is all stuff that Schleiner loves, right? Um, we've got like sort of situationist derive stuff going on. We've got kids playing with technology in ways uh, that are like non-scripted or like, you know, uh, not what the, the designers of the technology had in mind. Uh, but then at the end of the series, the kids learn, uh, basically, it seems that uh, the mega corporation actually has everyone's best interests at heart. Um, and all of your parents work for it anyway. And eventually you need to grow up and realize that you have to kind of like make some sacrifices of your own, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, freedom and individuality or whatever uh, in order to make sure that your family and your society and your community like persist. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the, all the stuff that they thought was bad about the mega corporation turns out to be like, well, they were trying their best or like we we misapprehended the situation. And this is a thing that Schleiner does not like because uh, uh the kind of quietude of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I this is like my least form or least favorite academic like engagement, mm -hmm. which is like uh, here. Here's the object and how it is an allegory for other stuff I care about. Mm hmm. Um, because right, there's no real interest. There's only interested in narrative plot here. There's not really interested in, in like reading the image. There's no uh, concern for like the anime form mm -hmm. as like its own kind of rhetorical object, right. right? I mean, we just spent a couple chapters talking about how like media, you know, the game, uh, and and then like these like performative like media apparatuses, how they afford certain types of interactions, and then. Cinematic images are just like naively cinematic images, right? Mm -hmm. They're just they're just there to be mined for like narrative content. Yeah. I you know, I, I I don't I really don't agree with that and I really wish there had been some engagement with that. Uh I thought the theorization of toys here was really interesting. I think there's a really good summary here of the like uh Foucault Agamben connector around biopolitics and the dispositif. I think the theory here is actually really good if you're looking for like a good solid five page summary of like what's going on with um uh you know uh the Agamben version of an assemblage and then Foucault's dispositif. Mm -hmm. Uh but yeah, this is this is a thing where basically we're reading a narrative story for it's like evidence of some other thing that Schleiner cares about. And like this is not the type of like cinema studies or moving image studies that I like truck with. Mm -hmm. I'm not on board. Mm -hmm. um, like you can really feel the lack of cultural studies. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's sort of my takeaway too, is that like that we, we just get so much about like the plot of this thing. Uh, but you know, it's, like it's a it's an entire like limited run series, right? I think there's, you know, maybe like 20 something episodes of this. Uh, so like there's more to it than just its plot, right? There there are other things going on. 
Uh, and instead, it's just kind of like, well, OK, I mean, I, I haven't seen it is the other thing. So I can't like generate a productive reading or like a counter reading where I'm like, well, this is what's not being accounted for. It's it's I have to take Schleiner kind of at her word of her reading of this thing. And what it leaves me with is just kind of like, you know, OK, like I see these concerns from the rest of the book here in in the way that this narrative is being presented. Um, and then sort of overall, the reading of that narrative uh, is uh, put in tension for me, like both by like the object itself uh, in the way that it ends where Schleiner is obviously like critical of it. Um, but like she is critical of it in order to save what she thinks is like the, the ultimate positive, which is this idea of children's play as the Arentian space of appearances, essentially. Like as these kids just kind of like play around in the city, they've recreated the space of appearances where uh, like they're they're all kind of like meeting on a level playing field and they're just like doing this, that and the other. Um, and the the thing that makes me wary here is that I am just uh, incredibly skeptical of arguments that sort of boil down to like and the children will save us all. And that's kind of what happens here, where uh, the ultimate and like fundamental form of liberatory play is presented as children's play. Um, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I just think it's like uh, far too easy of an answer to the problems of the world. Yeah, yeah the, <laughs> unfortunately, children grow up to be adults. Right. And like, that's exactly <laughs> what the anime shows anime. us. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That uh, you get absorbed into systems. But, you know, we can hold out. I, I think it's okay to hold out for the utopia of, like, a child before it enters into society. Mm -hmm. But you, you're going to have to, like, have a strong theory of society. And, right, uh, this is partially what I'm talking about here about the lack of cultural studies. What's the, What are the mechanisms in which children's play turn into adult play? Mm -hmm. Like, what, what, what give, I, I would have loved... This this is a chapter that needed its own book, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and uh, it, it, that Giddings kind of gave us a little bit of, right? You know, obviously not about the systems of acculturation, but Giddings is uh, pretty great in that book about saying, like, here's how the kids played with one another. Here's how that's different from how adults play from one another. What can we assume about the differences, mm -hmm. you know, here uh, based on comparative? And that, that would have been okay here. But yeah, I, you know, I think that in a general sense, the theorization for me, the theorization that's going on in this chapter is really interesting. The kind of notions of ideas between children's play about toys and games and how they work. Pretty interesting to me. I think that overall the method is one that I, as someone who comes primarily out of like an image reading discipline, mm -hmm right uh who, who then engages with games i i implore everyone who is reading images to actually read the image that is like if there was one thing to take from this please like look at the image in front of you and determine how it works um it is not reducible films are not reducible to their plot elements mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that like a novel is not reduced to its plot elements right like the, they're communicated in ways so the arrangement right? of the words like, on the page actually matters yeah it matters it matters how like things happen and in what form and what time and like uh how they are arranged and uh you know um i i it's just that like it is a thing that is so overwhelming to me that it's hard for me to get around but i thought the chapter was cool in in its big big like argumentative stuff but mm -hmm. the method for me is is um uh, you know, I just got kind of a mental block there. But uh, if you're ready to do it, let's talk about the final chapter, chapter six. Yeah, uh, I mean, chapter six is uh, called a tactical sketchbook for ludic mutation. 
Uh, yeah. And this is like basically a, a synopsis of the book that you've read uh, with kind of like a number of like these are these are like the strategies or like uh, 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 call signs for the, the different strategies uh, that each of the chapters implies or outlines. Mm hmm. I, I yes, yep. <laughs> you know it's it's a, it is like a conclusion. Yep. Uh, on one thirty four, this is her like big summary of what's going on in the book that I think is really good. One thirty four, ludic mutation is in many cases more of a subterranean resistant power grab from the game rather than a sequence of constructive political steps aimed at reaching a definitive object, such as changing public consensus about a law or foreign policy. How you feel about this book? is going to strongly depend on whether how you feel about this, I think, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, like, the thing we should full-throatedly be talking about is subterranean resistant power grabs from the game or big political statements mm -hmm. about stuff? And I, you know, that that is up to you. I am, I am, uh... I'm always worried that, like, if our political, you, you know, if our utopian horizon, you know, not to rip off a podcast name, but if, <laughs> if the horizon of thought that we have is just a resistant power grab from the game, I don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, you know, I think the most charitable way to read this is that, uh, in, in the way that Schleiner intends this to be read, is that we are always stealing something back from the game. Like mm -hmm. human players are never just letting the game actually override them and control them. And maybe what we need is just more focus on that. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's never to totally, uh, you know, uh, eaten by the system that people are always resisting, that people are able to resist powerfully and in specific ways, but they're just often ignored, mm -hmm. you know, and no one cares about it. And maybe if we cared about it a little bit more and focused on it a little bit more, then that might actually be able to, uh, align itself with other political moves and accomplish big things. Um, you know, I certainly don't think that just like yelling about foreign policy on Twitter every day does much either. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> right. Like I, that, you know, that also doesn't move the bar for me. So, you know, I think that, that it's a great summative statement for the book. And uh, again, however you land on that is probably how you're going to land on the whole book. Um we, I don't know if any of these tactics, these are great summations of the tactics here, but did any of these summations, Michael, give you uh, a better understanding of them that you didn't get in the chapters or, or uh, was it just kind of summary for you? It was, it was mostly just kind of summary for me. Um, well, there we yeah. go. <laughs> I enjoyed the book. I liked reading this book. I think it gave me a lot to think about. Uh, and sometimes the thing that gives you a lot to think about is the thing you just disagree with kind of throughout. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I don't have, certainly, I don't have unalloyed praise for this, but I enjoy the kind of full-throated nature of it. I really enjoy the examples. I think it's great that there is someone who is digging into the past 30 years of game interventions to talk about these things, even if, uh, you know, I don't agree with the final theorizations of it. I mean, this is kind of my ideal book in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. which is that uh, it is a great thing to think with yeah. um, and to build on. You know, I, I don't think I have very much interest in tearing down much of this, uh, but I do want to engage with it in a way that kind of builds out from its kind of suppositions, even the ones I don't really agree with. I think that that it provides a really good, you know, I think I used the word substrate earlier, but a good substrate to start thinking more in depth about it. Um, and, you know, I love when someone puts pressure on our kind of unexamined ideas. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and the things that generally we accept. And uh, I, I think that Schleiner does a really good job of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the highlight of this book for me is the fact that it does go from uh, a sort of like, you know, little doll game uh, created in 1991 to the serious games of uh, around 2012, right? I I think that it is actually really uh, good and and impressive that it does have a a very long view of what games culture is and has been. Um, And I would actually be really interested, like the entire time I was reading it, I was thinking like, man, I would I would love to see like what happens to these ideas if then the subsequent decade of what happened in games culture got to be filtered back in here. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Interesting book. Interesting book. And what are we talking about next time then? What interesting book is on our plates next? So I have I have a pitch for a unit of two books back to back, you know, two months in a row. So this would be our, we're at what? This is March's episode. So uh, April and May. Mm-hmm. So the first would be John Peterson's The Elusive Shift. Uh, the subtitle is how role-playing games forged their identity. Okay. Which is basically about the birth of D and D. Okay. Um, and like what it came out of and all this kind of different stuff. It is, as far as I can tell, I have a copy of it, but I haven't sat down to read the whole thing yet. As far as I can tell, it's kind of a summation and a reformulation of some of the stuff that John Peterson was doing in his earlier kind of, uh, I think, uh, it's the play of the world. Wait, no playing at the world. Mm-hmm. I always get the that and the other title confused, <laughs> but which is this like big massive tome, right? Of the analysis of this entire time period, interviews he did, all that kind of stuff. This is kind of a it, it seems to me like a condensification of one piece of that to really talk about like where do role playing games come from? Period. Yes. And then how do they like solidify into D and D? Even though there are lots of different competing narratives of that. Okay, so we could do that, the elusive shift, and then the next book we do would be. Uh, this is a William White's book, Tabletop RPG Design in Theory and Practice at The Forge, 2001 to 2012, Designs and Discussions, which is like a discourse analysis of The Forge website, where like people were discussing tabletop RPG design during the kind of like waning or, you know, like the dip period mm-hmm. after the 90s, uh, before TTRPGs and D&D uh, in particular come back really heavily in like the mid 2010s. Um, and, uh, you know, with like fourth edition and then fifth edition. So I think that would be like a really cool, uh, you know, I don't know, like here's the birth of the moment. Here's like what people are talking about when they're inventing all of these other styles, you know, enabled by the internet in a big way Mm -hmm. in the early two thousands. And people are hankering after this, you know, we get a lot of people who, uh, give us uh, suggestions for what we do. And I will say that the, one of the biggest suggestions of what we should do on the show is anything about TTRPGs. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think this would be a good survey of like, where's the stuff emerged from? And then wh- what was like an interesting moment, you know, that really kind of birthed a lot of what we live in now with like a huge TTRPG online culture. Uh, how does that sound to you, Michael? Sounds great. Because you care about all this. Yes. What, you, you said, what, that was an interesting question. What does... <laughs> I don't know. Well, you, you, don't, yeah, you know, you and I talk about a lot of stuff. Yes. You don't really ever bring up TTRPGs. I mean, I I am interested in TTRPGs. I've like played them. Obviously, uh, I I find them you know interesting as a, a form of like collaborative theater. Uh, you know, me being mm-hmm. me. Uh, but I don't play them a lot now, right? I I have like uh you know sort of I do other stuff with my life. Uh, but like I'm definitely interested in TTRPGs. Mm-hmm. You listen to friends at the yeah, table, of course. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I think it'll be cool. I, well, I think in particular, right, because I care about Chi-Chi RPGs generally as a player. Mm-hmm. Right? I've, I've been playing them for a long time. Had a lot of discussions. Danny, of course, uh, a frequent collaborator. We, we talk about RPGs all the time, mm-hmm. constantly. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have our, we have Mages and Murder Dance, which is like this weird digital inheritor of a lot of these things, right? Uh, so I really care about it from like that perspective, and you care about it from what seems to be like a totally almost orthogonal perspective from mine of like, for example, your, your theatrical background, your ability to analyze it from a perspective that I have, don't ever really think about. <laughs> Uh, so I think we'll have a good kind of cr- wherever we cross will be very. interesting. I mean, you know, just yeah. fundamentally, I'm a person who's very interested in what happens when it like two or more people are in a room imagining things together. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're going to have a great time. I'm I'm called shot called shot right now. Michael is going to be like, uh, we're going to be in the middle of this John Peterson book. And Michael will be like, well, uh, John Peterson says this was invented in 1945, but actually in 1581, <laughs> there was a poet who, right? Like, I feel so confident that's going to happen. Um, and so please be on the lookout for, uh, poets from 1581 in the upcoming episodes. But I think they'll be really excited. I think other people are going to find this to be fun. I'm excited to read both of these books. I own them both, but have not had, an opportunity or uh, excuse to read them yet because I don't really write on these things and I've been really caught up in writing projects recently. So I'm excited to do it. I think it'll be cool. And then maybe we should announce it. Let's let's soft announce. Okay. Here, yeah. Here it comes. Starting in June, June, July, August, we're going to be doing what we're calling the summer of class. Any way you want it. That's the way you need it. Any way you want it. That's the that's the musical uh, backing here. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the dad yeah. rock of <laughs> Game Study Summer of Classics. Summer of Classics. Uh, hot Wax Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But yeah, so we're going to be reading. I don't want to preview which ones yet because we haven't decided which ones yet. But we are going to be doing kind of three back-to-back um, often requested big classics and game studies that we haven't gotten to yet. And if you have opinions on what those should be, you should tweet at us. You should tweet us at Range Touch. Uh, or you can put it on our Discord. Um, you know, the information about that is down in the description below this episode. We're more than willing at this point. We're a couple months out. We're more than willing to take some uh, suggestions. But yeah, these are going to be, you know, uh, occasionally we go back and do classics, but we're doing a whole summer classic. So we can knock them all <laughs> out mm-hmm. back to back to back to really start doing some reconstruction of classic game studies for, for folks. So I'm excited to do that. And and I, I bet one of them is going to be like an, an under an under-discussed classic. So like one that should have been a classic. You know, I love mm-hmm. that. You know, I love finding an old book and saying that it should have been a classic and everyone got it wrong back then because I wasn't there. And so I can't be held accountable <laughs> for the decisions that were made. And it's easy to be like, well, someone in 2001 should have been doing this. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm a baby. <laughs> well, not literally a baby, but a, a, a child. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay, so we're going to be back doing that. I, you know, I'm excited for the next six months or so of episodes. I think they're going to be some of the best ones we've done yet. Thanks so much to everyone who has been listening so far and kept along. And if you're a new listener, uh, welcome in. We've had a lot of new listeners coming in over the past few months. And I think you'll like what we talk about uh, coming up. So uh, thanks so much for listening. And Michael, you want to take us out? The Social is founded on its exclusions.